Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to, me, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he, has taken, which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I've got some really good news for us this morning. This Wednesday, we are scheduled to close on our new building in Bettendorf. Yeah. <clears throat> Now, it has been a long time coming, but God has provided for us a new home as a church, and we are absolutely thrilled about it. So many of you have told me that you've 
driven through the parking lot and I can't wait to see the inside. So I didn't want to dilly dally around. We close Wednesday morning. And so I want to open it up Wednesday night for anybody that wants to go through it and get a peek at the insides. So next Wednesday night, The elders are inviting anyone who wants to walk through the building to meet us over there, 1811 18th Street in Bettendorf. And here's the deal. If we all showed up at one time, it would be chaos, okay? What I want to do is have us pick a time, 6, 6.30 or 7, meet in the parking lot. I will tell you a little bit about the vision that we're going to do with the remodeling, and then we can walk through it, and then you can ask questions, and I'll try to answer them, and then you can walk around and hang out for as long as you want, and I'll go back and start with the next group. Um, some of you, you're not very good at seeing before and after, right? Some of you are good at seeing the bones and seeing what something can be. So I want to provide a little bit of the vision uh, that we've got for the remodels so that you can go in and just not go, oh, we paid a million dollars for this, right? Yes, we did. And I'm really happy about it, actually. So we are really thrilled at what God has given to us. And uh, we're looking forward to that. So Wednesday night, Bring your family. Kids can run around. That's totally cool. Um, 6, 6.30 and 7 o'clock. Now, in one small sense, I feel like we are right on the edge of the promised land here. That God has provided a place for us and now we need to obey him. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to do before we get to enter in and enjoy what he's given us. Now, in one sense, this is going to be a really unique season for us as a church. From the day one of Sacred City Church, we have always said that the church is not a building. The church is a people. That's what we are. The church is the people of God. We still believe that. But this next season of ministry, our mission is going to be building focused. It's going to be building focused for a little while. Now, It's just important that we remember that the building isn't the end goal. Like we don't sit there and say, oh, we made it to the promised land. All is going to be good now. No, no. This is the next stage in our mission. We need to get this building done. We need to get it renovated. We need to move in, become really hospitable guests for people that are going to come and check us out and hear the gospel. But then the building is here to serve the mission of making disciples. Right? The building is here to serve the mission of building the kingdom of God. That's what it's here for us. The building is just a tool for us to continue to make disciples here in the Quad Cities. So I hope you and your families join us this Wednesday night, 6, 6.30 or 7 at the new building. Now let me pray for us and we can get into our sermon and our text this morning. God, we come before you. We thank you first and foremost for all the work that you've done um, for us. As Joel said this morning, that you, um, you do not sleep, you do not slumber, and, and we have to because we are created and we're finite, but you are infinite. And so God, everything about us is finite. Our knowledge is finite. Our understanding is finite. Our strength is finite. Our wisdom is finite. And so we, you, we need you, the infinite one, to speak to us. Teach us about this world that you made. Teach us about our nature, who we are, what we're for. Teach us about Jesus and your son and what you've done for us. Teach us about our purpose in life. God, we want to be taught and we need your word to direct us. So would you bring light to those who are in darkness? Would you bring healing to those who are hurting this morning? Would you bring strength to those who are weak? I'm a finite and fallen man. And so I'm sinful and I make mistakes. I am prone to error. And so I pray that you would guide me today. You'd think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that 
your people would hear your voice through mine today. Would you do this for your glory and our joy and the good of our city? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you're just joining us, we are currently studying the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and we're doing this because people in our own families, people in our own city, people in our own country and culture have forgotten where they come from. And the idea is if, if you don't understand your origins, if you don't understand where you come from, you almost certainly misunderstand who you are and what you're here for. As one member told me this week, they were standing before the ocean and they were there with another person and they looked out in the ocean and they said, man, isn't this just beautiful? You know, it just makes my soul want to worship and say, thank God for creating this. And the other person said, what are you talking about? We came from that. We crawled out of that. Here's the idea. If you believe you slithered your way out of the ocean and evolved to some, to whatever you are now, Right. You get to determine who you are. You get to determine what you're for. You get to determine your own morals. And don't be surprised when human beings start acting like snakes. Now, what we've covered so far in this series, we've already covered Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we've covered some really important pieces of our origin story. But today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to look at this this week and next week. And Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. In fact, you won't understand the rest of the Bible unless you understand Genesis 3. You won't understand our world unless you understand Genesis 3. You won't understand your own heart and what's going on inside your soul unless you understand Genesis 3. We call this scene in the story of God, the fall, or you could call it paradise lost. Genesis 1 and 2 covered the creation by God of everything that exists, and everything is what? Glorious and good. God created everything and said, it is very good. The only thing that wasn't good was man all by himself. So God custom designed a woman and brought her to the man, and they were naked and happy for about two seconds before they did the one thing that God told them not to do. And that one thing wasn't, don't touch her, that wasn't the one thing. The one thing was, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This chapter is about that. And it shows us our first parents fall from grace and its consequences that still plague us today. This chapter answers the most important questions in life for us. Questions like, what's wrong with the world? Why is life so hard? Why is marriage so difficult? Glad nobody said amen there. Why does our relationship with God often feel like a relationship between the cat and the mouse? Why is work never ending? Why is giving birth not a pleasant experience? To put a really sharp point on this, I'd say, what would cause a woman to believe she's a man? What would cause a 28-year-old woman to enter into a Christian school and murder innocent children? This chapter answers all of those questions for us and many more. 
But before we can really study Genesis 3, we actually need a little bit of backstory that isn't mentioned directly in our text. See, when God created everything, he created two types of intelligent beings. We've already studied one of them, and that's us, that we are made special and unique in all of God's creation. Human beings alone are made in the image and likeness of God, the imago Dei, we say. We are embodied spirits. God made us from the dust of the ground and from the rib of Adam, and then he breathed into us the breath of life. So looking at all of God's creation, we are unique in that we are both spiritual and physical. We are soul, we, are, we have a soul and a physical body that's enmeshed one with the other. But God also created another type of intelligent being. And that intelligent being is called angels over 300 times in the Bible. Now, they're not only called angels. As you read scriptures, they're called a lot of things. They're called living creatures. They're called cherubs and cherubims, seraphims. They're called sons of God, sons of the mighty, spirits, holy ones, watchers, principalities and powers, thrones. All of these are angelic beings. The word angel simply means messenger. Now, Angels, therefore, they are God's spiritual servants in the unseen realm. And they sometimes reveal themselves to men, and they can also take the shape of man or woman if they want to. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews makes this statement, quote, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So we might have met an angel and have been totally unaware of it. In scripture, we learn that angels basically have three jobs. They bring God's word, they fight God's battles, and they minister to God's, be- God's people. That's the three things an angel does. They bring God's word, they fight God's battle, and they minister to God's people. That's what they were created to do. Now here's where things get interesting. According to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, one of these angels decided in his own heart to rebel from his creator. Now, that's the first important thing we need to hear. Unlike other religions that believe that there is an, like for every amount of light, there's an equal amount of darkness or every amount of good, there's an equal amount of bad. Christianity does not teach that. What we're going to learn about Satan and the devil, he is not the equal with God. God alone is sovereign over all. God alone is the uncreated creator. Satan is merely a rebel. He's merely one of of God's created spirits who's rebelled against him. So he does not have equal power with God. He does not have equal wisdom with God. He is not in control. God is ultimately in control. But what happens is, sometime we don't know when, one of these angels rebelled against God. This angel, who the scriptures tell us, was an exceedingly beautiful guardian cherub did not want to worship God. He wanted instead to be God. He saw God's throne and he said, I want to sit on that throne. I want what he has. I don't want to just worship him. I want to be worshiped. Now this angel is called Lucifer, the day star in the Old Testament. And it's called Satan and the devil and the deceiver and the prince of darkness and all kinds of different things in the New Testament. 
Jesus said, when speaking of him, said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus is saying, I saw the day star, I saw Lucifer get judged and kicked out of heaven for his rebellion. So what Satan does is Satan tries to usurp God's throne. He says, I don't want to be, I don't want to worship God. I don't want to be what God created me to be. I want to rebel against the created order and I want to usurp him. And what the New Testament book of Revelation tells us is Satan actually convinced one third of the angels to join in his rebellion against God with him. And God judges them, kicks them out of heaven. There'll be no redemption for these angels. There'll be no grace for these angels. These angels will dwell together in hell under judgment for eternity. And now these angels are called fallen angels or demons. Demons do the exact opposite of angels. They speak lies. They fight against the kingdom of God in the unseen realm. And they tempt and accuse God's people. That's what devils do. That's what demons do. So technically speaking, the fall began in heaven with Satan and the demons. But then Satan, once thrown down to the earth in judgment enters into a serpent here or takes the form of a serpent in order to tempt God's people into rebellion. Now, I know it's kind of, if you go to college, if you've ever heard anybody comment on this, they laugh and they mock, ah, Christians believe in such silly myths. They believe that a a, a snake could talk, ha, 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 ha. And those people that believe in evolution believe we used to be snakes. That seems more rational to you? Okay. Go with that then. But here's what Jesus, the son of God, says about the devil in the gospel of John. Now listen, this is when religious leaders were confronting him. People that looked really good and moral on the outside. Here's what Jesus said to them in John chapter 8, verse 44 to 45. He said, Jesus, really, again, sweet, nice Jesus said this, quote, you are the father, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He, speaking of Satan, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks or when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Satan is. The devil is a liar, a deceiver, a murderer, and he is the father of all lies. There is no truth in Satan. Satan is a masterful liar. That's who he is, and that is, that is his primary means for tempting and attacking God's people. His game plan is still the same. It has not changed any from the Garden of Eden, and I think you're going to see that today. Satan comes, Jesus said, to steal from you or to steal from God's people, to kill God's people, and to destroy God's people. And the primary way he does that is through speaking lies. So let's get into our text this morning. The fall, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty. Hear that, crafty. He's more intelligent than we are. He's a great deceiver. More crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, 
did God actually say? Now, this is interesting. That word God there is Elohim. And it's the general word for God. Like you would say any other gods of the nation, just God, just this general idea. Did God actually say? What we've seen over and over and over in the book of Genesis, and we're going to see later in this chapter, is when, pe- when, when people are speaking of our God, the true God, they say the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. The covenant-keeping God, the one true God who's revealed himself. And when Satan speaks, he speaks in a very general way. Oh, did, did God really say this? Let's keep going. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice here, Satan goes after Eve. We got to remember what happened in Genesis 2. God had spoken directly to Adam. God gave Adam the mission. God gave Adam the commandment. God told Adam to be the leader of his wife and to communicate as the covenant head, to communicate his message to her and his mission to her, right? Adam was the one to lead and to provide and protect Eve. And she was to be his helper. She was to submit to him and help him accomplish their mission to be fruitful and take dominion over the earth together. So what does Satan do? The first temptation Satan brings into the garden is the temptation he tries to drive a wedge between the husband and the wife. Any attack on marriage is satanic in its origin. Any attack on marriage is demonic in its origin. Of course, we know that marriage is meant to point towards the gospel. Satan hates the gospel. Satan hates God. So Satan hates your marriage. First thing he does is he attacks Adam and Eve. Here he attacks Eve and tries to get her to believe a lie about her husband and believe a lie about God. What we're going to learn here is that Satan, many people miss this. Satan doesn't just attack Adam and Eve in some kind of general and superficial way. Satan personalizes his attack. How how do I illustrate a personalized attack? It's like this. We all know this is happening. You You have a cell phone and that smartphone is in your pocket and that smartphone is listening to you at all times. And what's happening is that cell phone provider, that whoever it is, it's selling the information that it has, that it gains from listening to you to marketers. And those marketers personalize their attacks, personalize their marketing to you. This is how you can say something totally random. Like, I wonder if I could buy a toothbrush that's solar powered. And you open up your phone 15 minutes later and you have an advertisement for a solar powered toothbrush, right? How is that happening? The marketer, they're listening to you and they're, they're marketing to you in a personalized way. Listen, Satan, when he attempts us, he tempts us in a personalized way. It's personally customized to your gender. It's personally customized to your personality, to your wants, to your desires, to your weaknesses. Satan never tempts me with being gluttonous over broccoli. Never once. Never once. He didn't get me with some pulled pork though. (laughs) 
he attacks the woman in a very certain way, and then he's going to attack the man in a very certain way. Here's what we're going to see today. This is the main point I want us to see. God created us uniquely. Satan tempts us uniquely. And then God has cursed us uniquely. And then God wants to restore us uniquely according to our gender, according to our biological sex. This is all unique. You're going to see this in the text here this morning. All right. So just as God created Adam and Eve differently, so Satan tempts them and attacks them differently. Satan says to Eve, did God actually say, did I, now listen, did Eve hear God say this? No, she didn't. He's at, God spoke it to Adam and said, told Adam to lead his wife. And so at, what God is trying to do here is drive a wedge between Eve and Adam and Eve and God. Eve wasn't there. Eve didn't hear God actually say it. So now Satan is tempting her to doubt the words of God and the leadership of her husband. Satan's in effect saying, what? Were you there when God said that? She's putting the doubt in her, in her mind. Maybe that's just what Adam told you, God said, in order to get you to be his helper, to get you to do what he wants you to do. Can you really trust your Adam? Can you really trust that man? Maybe he's trying to manipulate you. Maybe he's trying to use you. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Why aren't you the leader? Can you trust God? Maybe God's the one who's not trustworthy. Satan here targeting Eve exactly how she's created. Tempting her in very certain ways, very specific ways. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may, first off, we've already got a problem here, right? She's talking to somebody she shouldn't be talking to. Adam should have already stepped up and put a stop to this, but he hasn't, okay? So now the conversation continues and she responds to Satan and she says, no, 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 God didn't say we, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So Satan twists God's word and she's like, no, 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 God didn't say that. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So what we see here is Eve kind of resists most of the lies of the enemy, and she responds to him with partial truth. But partial truth isn't enough. She mistakenly says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said you couldn't touch the tree. God said you just can't eat of the tree. So here Eve, we don't know, accidentally or purposefully, she adds to the word of God. God never said they couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat of it. Now, this is how Satan works. In effect, he's already won here. He's already got her speaking something that's not true. She, he's already got her twisting God's word and twisting natural reality as God has revealed it. He's deceived the woman in such a way that she's already twisting God's commands. Look what happens in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You will not surely die. God's a liar. That would never happen. Look how beautiful that tree is. That tree's going to taste amazing. No way, you're not going to die. Verse 5, keep going. For God knows, oh, here it is, God's holding out on you. 
You know what, ladies? You know what would really make you fulfilled? To be the boss. To be the boss of your husband. To be in control. You know what would really be, you know where you're really going to find freedom? Away from your husband and away from God. That's where true freedom lies. Satan says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be enlightened. You will be more than God. Remember the temptation that caused Satan to get thrown out of heaven. Satan wanted to be like God. Satan wanted, didn't want to worship God and fulfill his created, or, his created role as a part of God's creation. He wanted to be God. And so now he tempts Eve with the same temptation that he felt to himself. He says, oh, no, no, you're not going to die. God knows you'll actually, you can be more than just creation. If you eat of that tree, you'll be more than created. You'll be more than woman. You'll be like him. You'll be godlike. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says here, God is a liar. You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. He has ulterior motives. He doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows that if you eat from it, you'll become just like him. You'll be enlightened. Your eyes will be open knowing good and evil. Satan speaks like a silver-tongued deceiver. There has never been a better preacher than Satan himself. There has never been a better comedian than Satan himself. There has never been a better liar than Satan himself. He successfully here gets Eve to doubt God's goodness, to distrust her husband's leadership, and placed inside her head the thought, this is the thought, true freedom will be found away from God and away from God's ways. Satan promises freedom, but only delivers death and destruction. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Look at this thing. Here, here's the trick. It looks good. The temptation looks good. Tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. So it was going to taste good. It was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This will be good for me. Look at that. That will make me more than what I am. I want to be more than just a helper. I want to be more than just my husband's other. I want to be more than that. This will make me more than that. She took of its fruit and ate. This is the poisoned apple. It looks good, man. It tastes good, and it will supposedly make you wise. Little did she know, it was simply an attractive lure with a hidden hook inside that would enslave her and her posterity for thousands of years into the future. This is what's been cognified in so many different fairy tales and so many different myths. This is the poisoned apple. Now, we don't know if it was an apple, right? It was some kind of fruit, but it looked good, it was going to taste good, and it promised freedom. You determine your future. You get an autonomy that can determine what you want for the rest of your life. You're going to be more than just what you are. And inside of it, it's poison. Listen, Satan is no dummy. 
fact, he's smarter than any of us in here. He's got more experience tempting than any of us have experienced in this world. He rarely shows you the hook when he's tempting you. He promises you there's freedom in that pornography. There's freedom in that sin. And he disguises the hook. And then he hooks your soul and hooks your mind. And he hooks you and he drags you into death and he drags you into destruction. This is the way he works. He makes you a slave to your sinful desires and a slave to himself. And what does he want? To steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. And what does Eve do here? She takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you hear that detail? Where was Adam in this, in this temptation? Right next to her. He was with her. She was being tempted by Satan and Adam just let it happen. He didn't protect her from the lies of Satan. He didn't step up and say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He didn't step in and say, honey, who are you talking to? Oh, what did he say? Oh, you better get behind me, Satan. See, that's what Jesus said, right? That's what Jesus said is get behind me. When Peter, one of his most trusted disciples, Jesus said, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for you. Peter steps in and says, that'll never happen, Lord. You're never going to do that. Jesus realizes that Satan is tempting Peter to say that, or Satan is infiltrating his mind to tell Peter to say that. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus sees through the man and sees the demon behind him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That's what Adam was supposed to do. Satan, you better back off. That's not what God said. Shut your mouth. Get out of here. That's what Adam should have done. But instead, what does he do? He passively goes along for the ride. Here's what toxic masculinity looks like. Whatever you want, honey. See, there's two sides of toxic masculinity. There's, of course, abuse. There's also just being apathetic, going along for the ride. He should have rebuked the snake with the truth of God's word and then exercised his dominion over creation. Remember, God said, I put you in the garden to work it and to keep it, to keep it safe. And now he, found, he finds a snake deceiving his wife and you know what he should have done? Rebuked it with the truth and then cut its head off and then threw it over his shoulder and brought it back to God, his king, as fealty and said, look what I found in your garden. You put me here with a mission to keep this thing and look what I found lurking in your garden. Got him. That's what Adam should have done. But what does Adam do? Adam abdicates his responsibility to his wife and Adam fails as a husband. Men, Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, your wife, your family. And he, wants, he will deceive in many different ways. He wants to get into your home through pornography. He wants to get into your home through all kinds of ways. And he wants you just to back up and say, honey, whatever you want. You're called by God to lead. That's what you're called by God to do. Look, what, look how Eve failed as a wife. 
God created her as his helper. And what does she do? She helped her husband sin. She led him into sin. Adam fails to lead his wife and then follows her into sin. Remember that Adam is the federal head, the covenant head. So when Eve ate the apple, we see nothing really happened with creation. It wasn't until Eve ate the apple, gave it to her husband, he ate, then something happens. Why? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first consequence of their sin was that suddenly they became aware that they were naked and now needed to be covered. Before that, remember, Scripture said they were naked and not ashamed. And now all of a sudden we see something enter in the garden, something we call shame. Before they were naked, they were vulnerable, they were open to one another, they could mutually trust one another, and now all of a sudden, I need to cover myself. Now all of a sudden, I don't really know if I can trust you or not. I feel there's something wrong with me, and I need to cover myself. Now we should ask, well, Jesus said, or Jesus, God said in the garden, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Why why don't they die immediately? Why don't they die a physical death immediately? And why is this, what's up with this shame stuff? Well, there's more to death than just physical death. There's also spiritual death, being cut off from God. There's the death of innocence, the death of purity, the death of holiness, the death of their special relationship with God and their special relationship with one another. There's a death of their relationship with the rest of creation. The rest of creation is going to get cursed as well. On top of all of that, they will actually die a physical death. See, death is a multifaceted enemy. Now, we're going to look at each aspect, each of these aspects of death. Look at verse 8. And I'm going to kind of rush through this a little bit because next week we're going to focus most of our time on this. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Lord God, presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now this is, we, we miss the importance of this. God himself, because God is the uncreated creator. God himself is the source of unseeking, uh, unceasing joy, happiness, glory. Everything good finds its source in God. So when you hear this, they're running, they hear God coming and they're running from God. They hear happiness coming and they're running from him. They hear joy coming and they're running from him. They hear life and life more abundantly coming and they're running from him. This is the fall. This is a consequence of the fall. God, who is the source of everything, I was made for him to worship him and to enjoy him forever. He pursues me to give me grace and I run from him. I'm afraid of him because he's holy as well. Verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man, God's pursuing in order to give grace. And he said to them, where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam's realized there's something wrong with me now and something is, if God pursues me and God comes after me, there's something in me that he might judge now because I've rebelled against him and I've broken his commandments. So Adam is running away from life itself. God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God brings judgment. God brings confrontation. God steps up and says, did you do the one thing I told you you shouldn't do? Now, we call this conviction. We hope every single week in this sermon that God speaks to you in such a way that you're brought to conviction. You realize that you are a lawbreaker. You realize that you've pushed away from God. You realize that you've abandoned God, that you've sinned against God. And God does that not to be a meanie, not to be a jerk. God does that so that he can give you grace, so he can forgive you and cover your sins. But what does our natural, fallen human nature want to do in those moments? It doesn't want to take responsibility. It wants to blame. So look how, look what happens here. First off, we see this. We see the consequences of the fall. We see shame and nakedness immediately. We see hiding from God. We're gonna spend more time next week. Then we see that the relational union between Adam and Eve is now fractured. Look what, look what Adam says. Classic here. The man said, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Hmm. You see this? What does man want to do? He doesn't want to take responsibility. He doesn't want to take ownership for his sin. He doesn't want to say, I messed up. The snake got in the garden. I didn't do what you created me to do. He deceived my wife and I sinned. I, I repent. Adam doesn't want to do that. So what does he do? He blames the wife. Adam here, right? The bus of God's wrath is coming against him and he steps back and puts his wife in the way. Her fault. She did it. Actually, it's kind of your fault too, God. The wife that you gave me. She's a real good helper. Help me sin. Probably your fault. Well, what does he do? Or what does she do? I'm sorry. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? So the, he, bring, he comes and brings conviction to her as well. Gives her an opportunity to repent. What does she say? The woman said, the, the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see this pushing away of responsibility? Refusing to take ownership for my own sin. Adam blames Eve and God, and Eve blames the devil. And ever since this moment, we have been blame-shifting responsibility when we get convicted of our sin. We don't want to take responsibility for our wrongdoings. What do we want to do? We've been taught since childhood that everything that's wrong with you is actually somebody else's fault. So we blame our parents. 
We blame our spouse. We blame our kids. We blame our schools. We blame our government. We blame, we even blame even inanimate objects like guns instead of placing the blame right where it lies on human beings and their sinful choices. How convenient to point the finger at an inanimate inanimate object and say, oh yeah, guns are the problem. God has made us uniquely with dignity, value, and worth. He made us moral agents. He gave us moral agency. What does that mean? That means every single person has the ability to choose between right and wrong. You and only you are, a morally, resp- are morally responsible for your actions. Even the devil made me do it is not an adequate excuse. Are we affected by the fall? Yes, absolutely. Does the devil tempt us? Yes, absolutely. But you have been given dignity, value, and worth. That means you are made a moral creature that can choose between right and wrong. Between God and the devil. You cannot say we have dignity, value, and worth and then blame your parents for everything that's wrong with you. Or blame society's ills for everything that's wrong with you. Adam and Eve wanted to blame everybody else and perceive of themselves as victims in this situation. Blame it on the woman, blame it on God, blame it on the devil. No one took responsibility and said, I am capable, I am responsible, I am morally culpable, I am the one that did this, I take responsibility for my actions, and I sinned, and Father, please forgive me. Now, this is hypothetical, but we don't know what God would have done in this situation if they would have took responsibility and did that. God might have given them grace right there in the moment. I don't know. But what do they do? Blame everybody else. We want to blame the Bible? I don't, I don't agree with the Bible anymore. You're convicted. The Bible confronts you in your sin and challenges you and you don't like it. But this is, the, this is reality and this is the word of God. There's no freedom outside of it. Now what we have here, here's the, th- here's the thing I want you to see. God created them uniquely. Satan tempted them uniquely. And now God curses them uniquely. Remember, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. If you obey, it goes well for you. Adam and Eve would have lived forever in the garden in eternal bliss, eating from the tree of life, walking with God, knowing God. They would have built the kingdom of God. Everything would have went great if they obeyed him. Tons of blessings. But the curse came with it too. If you break my covenant, you will surely die. They have now broken the covenant, and so they have brought curses down upon themselves and the rest of creation. And we're going to look at these in verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, we're going to touch on this next week, so I'm just going to brush through it. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman... He says this. 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Mm. Remember, the woman, the one thing that she could do that man could not do was bear, was create, bear, and nourish life, right? It's the one thing she could do that Adam couldn't do. And now that one thing that she could do uniquely from Adam, that one thing is now uniquely cursed. That is now going to be painful to her. Ladies, is this still a thing? I joke. I've been there five times. I know it's a thing. I did the same thing Adam did in that moment. I blamed him. I said, honey, I'm sorry. It's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. Look at the next thing he says to her. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The woman who was taken from the side of Adam to be relationally oriented to him, to be under his arm and near his heart, will now desire to be his head. She will have desires that are contrary to her husband or against her husband. God says to her that there now will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage. Folks, is this still an issue? I know that was a quiet amen because you didn't want to get in trouble. I get it. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. <laughs> My wife knows Half the time, I'm not listening. The greatest problem here was Adam actually listened. <laughs> that was the problem. Oh, yeah, honey, go ahead, eat it. No big deal, right? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Look, unique, cursed is the ground. Adam was made from the ground to work it and keep it, and now the ground gets cursed for or because of Adam. What does that mean? In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground gets cursed here, which means that man's lifelong work is now going to be a whole lot harder than it was. Is work hard? It's back-breaking work, right? That's what it means. Is providing for your family easy? No. It takes everything. All of our thinking, all of our effort, all of our striving, all of our planning, every bit of testosterone we have in our body is meant to set a goal and, and go after it because it is hard and it seems like all creation is set against us. And then eventually, after a life of toil, Adam will eventually die and be put back into the earth. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Listen, when you look at this world, or you look into your own heart, and you ask, 
what is wrong with this place? What is wrong with me? This is God's answer. We are under a curse and we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot undo what Adam and Eve did in the garden. No matter how hard we try, no matter how moral or virtuous we try to be, we can never rid ourselves of sin and the curse of sin is death. The whole Bible is trying to convince you of that fact. You are not okay and you cannot fix yourself. Now, why, is, why do I have to emphasize that? Because our culture and the devil tells you the exact opposite. It says this, you're perfect. Everything about you is good. Why don't you go into your own mind, go into your own heart, and whatever you find there, you be that. You do that. That's the exact opposite. When you go into your heart, the heart is deceitful. The heart is desperately wicked. The heart is corrupt with sin. What I'm going to say is hard to hear in this culture. Christians have sat on their hands for too long and we've given up so much ground. God's truth seems like a harsh fact, but it's reality. You go inside and you find bent destructive forces. The Satan will whisper you the same thing he said. To, Did God really say? Did God really say that you're a boy? Did God really say that you're a girl? Did God really say that? Is that really true? You follow those lies. Satan, he promises freedom. He, he gives you death. Right? So we have a 28-year-old woman who's listened to the lies of the devil for long enough to believe that God is a liar and she's actually something that she feels herself to be, which is a boy, a biological boy. She starts taking hormones and then she's raging against her own body. She's raging against her creator and it's not long before she rages against Christians and Christianity and wants to go in and kill them and hunt down a pastor's daughter, nine-year-old daughter, and murder her. And then what? What does the devil do? Does the devil give freedom? No, he gives death. And what does she get? Death, judgment, and hell because of it. It started with, did God really say you were a girl? And it ends with death and destruction. And it is not kind, it is not compassionate to lie about God's truth to that person. The devil is whispering, getting her away in order to kill her. There's a reason why 40% of transgender people commit suicide. And it's not because society is so mean. It's because the devil is a liar and wants to kill them. The answer isn't found in here. Where's the answer found? Listen to this Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner. This is what he wrote of this whole chapter, and it blew me away this week. He said, quote, They took and ate. So simple an act. So hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Here's what he's saying. The only hope for mankind was that God would come 
and remove the curse from us. And that's exactly what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did. But this was no simple process. God couldn't just say some magic words. Why? Because he had already spoken. If you eat of it, you will die. The wages of sin is death. God is not a liar. Every one of his words will come true. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came as the second Adam, our new covenant head. And he obeyed God in everything. He resisted the devil and the devil fleed from him. He passed every temptation. And then he took our place on the cross to take the curse of death for us. Jesus died the death that we deserve for our many sins. Listen, do you believe that this morning? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he, look at the world, look how broken. The Bible tells us why it's broken. Look inside, why are you so broken? The Bible tells us why it's broken. And the Bible tells us what God has done about it. He sent his son. If you believe it this morning, here's the glorious good news. If Jesus took the curse of sin and death for us in our place, that means there is no longer any condemnation for us. If we are in Christ, our sins are gone. And now we can sing with the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. My sin, past sin, my present sin, my future sin was taken to cross, taken to, by Jesus on the cross and paid for there and now I bear the consequences no more. That is true freedom. That's why Jesus said it's the narrow way that opens up to something wide. The devil's way is wide and it ends in death. And Jesus' work of redemption, too many Christians miss this. Jesus' work of redemption restores what was lost in the fall. Where men are tempted either to abdicate their responsibility as the head of their home or to dominate their wives in abusive relationships. No, Christians now grow into loving leaders of their home who take responsibility and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, who protect their family from the lies of the snake. And women, where they're tempted to rule over their husbands, as they come under Christ, they learn to submit to Christ and to submit to their husbands and help them fulfill the mission that God has given them. For those of us in Christ, Jesus is currently at work on us, making us new. And it's important we realize he's not making new things. He's making fallen things new again. He's restoring us back to our original intent in the garden. So let us come and eat together of this salvific meal, this meal that displays for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us eat together as God's forgiven children, as we are being restored to God's original intention for us in the garden. Father God, I thank you for your grace to us. It's beyond words. It's beyond thought. We need it personally. Our families need it. 
Our community needs it. Our church needs it. Our city needs it. Our county needs it. Our state needs it. Our country needs it. God, we need you. Would you heal us? Would you restore us? Would you renew us? Would you do it for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.